I want to start uh, with a question. Have you ever been deceived over a long period of time? Uh, I have, uh, a story I'm not particularly proud of, uh, but uh, a bit of background, my, um, my dad's Dutch by background. He was, he was born in Australia, the rest of his family born in Holland. We lived there for a little bit. We lived in Canada for a few years before returning to Australia in 2000. And uh, one time I was um, with my sister and my mum. We were talking about middle names. And uh, my, dad's, uh, my dad's got a few middle names, being Dutch. Um, his, his Dutch name is Johannes Gerardus Maria Van Ruth. And um, I'm like, what a nice, long Full middle name, you know, good on dad. Anyway, my, my sister said, hey, Nick, you know how your middle name is John after dad? Well, well, the Dutch version is his full name. And I was like, oh, wow. So my name, my middle name is, is Nicholas Johannes Gerardus Maria Van Ruth. Like, oh, wow, that's a, what a nice, full, big, strong name. Like so many middle names. How, how interesting a fact about me. Anyway, I didn't realize my sister was joking. And uh, I left with that knowledge, uh, being deceived into thinking it was true for about a couple of years, uh, telling people, sharing this uh, mistruth about myself until one night at youth group, it was a, um, a prayer night and they were doing some get to know you game. My mum was there uh, uh, and in the get to know you game, it was fact bingo. One of the questions that you had to tick off was find someone with, with a middle name that begins with M. And I was like, great, my middle name, one of them is Maria. So obviously I, I ticked that box and um, I was telling someone that and my mum uh, was right behind me at the time. She turned around and said, no, it's not. <laughs> I had been deceived and that led to me believing something about myself that wasn't true that in honesty led to some pretty poor behavior of superiority and arrogance over my number of middle names. <laughs> I raise this story because I want to address an issue uh, in the church that Paul is address addressing to the church in Corinth, that the church has been deceived. We've bought into a lie. We've forgotten who we are. And that's led to some pretty poor behavior in the church. Uh, Paul's been speaking about this a lot. Like 1 Corinthians is, is a pretty tough book. Uh, I, I kind of feel it's a bit like um, you know, the mid-game mid meeting with the coach of a footy game where uh, the, the team has been really slacking off and no one's pulling their weight. And the coach is really laying into them in the mid-game uh, you know, speech. And that's what we got for, with 1 Corinthians. Paul's really laying into the Corinthian church. And uh, we get to work, work through that. And we get to hear what God has to say to us through that. So today we're zooming in into another specific issue that Paul's addressing. And that's conflict in the church. How the Corinthians are handling their conflict. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in and uh, throw that around a bit and see what, what's going on there. And then we're going to step back and address the deeper issue. And that's that the church has been deceived. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Where's it in mine? There it is. Um, and uh, we'll read. We'll start off just reading the first eight verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Paul says to the Corinthian church, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And, then, and if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is, sorry, is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've already been completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brother and sisters. So what's the issue in the Corinthian church? What's, what's going on? Is the way they're handling conflict. They're, they've got some civil disputes. Uh, it might be possession of property issues or damages, fraud, uh, contract disputes or injuries. Effectively, what's happened is when someone is, is wronged by another and is not criminal, it's civil, or, you know, instead of going to the church or going to the purpose, they're, they're going up, lawyering up and suing them for everything they have. They're dealing with, uh, with their conflicts in the secular, non-Christian courts, law courts. And these courts are known to be corrupt. You know, it's, it wasn't about justice or finding a good resolution. It's about how whoever had the deeper pockets is whoever came out on top. And Paul has three critiques to the Corinthian church on how they're handling their lawsuits, their, their uh, conflicts. The first one is they doubt their authority. They doubt their spiritual authority to handle such matters. And he does this using a rhetoric of asking, don't you know X, then Y, Z? Like, don't you know this, then why are you behaving like that? And he, he does it twice. The first is, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? You know, this is not something to hang your end time theology on, but what Paul is referring to is, is at the end of time, God's going to return and he's going to judge the whole world and his people will be there with him. And he's going to judge the world for its wickedness. So why is the church turning to wicked to judge their trivial cases? He says it again with angels. Don't you know that we judge angels? Again, not, not, you, know, you don't hang your heavenly theology on this, but he's, what, it's, what he's saying is, you know, we, we've got authority and responsibility over the great celestial beings in heaven. If that's true, why can't we manage these trivial earthly issues? Don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize whose you are? You're a child of God. You are his people. You have the authority to handle these issues. You don't have to turn outside of God's church. They, they've been deceived into thinking less of themselves. They've been deceived to doubt their authority to handle conflict within the church. The second thing Paul uh, critiques them on is they doubt their ability to handle these things. He, he says, you know, why, why do you take these things uh, and ask for a ruling from those outside the church whose way of life is scorned by the church? 
I say this to shame you. Is, is it not possible there is no one among you wise enough to handle these conflicts? Is there no one wise enough or mature enough to, to handle this? Has God not given the church pastors, apostles, elders, people who can, who can address these kind of things and help guide people through conflict and to a good resolution? Do we not realize that? Do we not understand that the church is able to handle these problems? So why does the Corinthian church, why do Christians today take these issues outside of the church to be judged by people with a completely different moral framework, completely different beliefs, completely different values? We've been deceived into thinking we can't do it. We forget who we are and what God has done for us. And third, and probably the more significant issue going on, is that the Corinthians were being driven by greed and not by grace. Paul, Paul says, you know, instead one brother takes another court, and this is in front of unbelievers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. You know, the moment that they take an issue outside the church and into court, they've both already lost. And you speak to anyone who's, who's uh, been involved in a long-term civil suit over any kind of issue, and it's taken years and years to resolve, and finally there's a resolution. No one feels like a winner in that situation, except maybe the lawyer's bank accounts. Paul says no one wins out of that scenario. And, and what, why are we ending up there? Well, would you rather be wrong? Would you rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and this to your own sisters and brothers. The reason that they're going there is because they want to main, you know, they want to end up on top. They want to maintain uh, their own stability and financial uh, property and whatever. They want to make sure that they are not the one to lose out. And so it's this mentality of I'm in this conflict, and that other person, they're probably going to cheat, and they're probably going to wrong me. So I better cheat and wrong them, so I end up on top. And this this attitude of one-upmanship and that's driven by greed of that desire. To, to get what we want and we, what we need, what we deserve out of that conflict, out of that um, disagreement. And no one wins. No one wins. And that being driven by greed is so counter what God would have us do, the way of God's kingdom. When Jesus said, if, you were, if someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek. If someone steals your tunic, you give them your coat, that kingdom way of forgiveness, of love, of self-sacrifice, of grace. There's apparently no evidence of this in the Corinthian church. And I wonder for us, when we are wronged, when someone does something against us that offends us, that, that hurts us, how do we respond? What drives our response? Are we driven by greed of making sure that we get what we deserve, that they, we get revenge and restitution? Are we driven uh, to make sure that we don't lose out in this scenario, that we're not left shortchanged or having lost more than the other? Or are we driven by grace? This is an opportunity to demonstrate the same love and forgiveness and self-sacrifice and grace that God has extended to me.
to us? Are we driven by greed or grace? And on that note, I want to take a quick detour and ask the question, well, with all this, does this mean that Christians should never go to court with other Christians? And that's a, that's a tough question. And I think if, you know, this is a different culture, different season, like the, the world works in a different way today than it did back then. But I still think if Paul were here in our context, he would say we should not be taking other Christians to court. Certainly not, like only as the last resort and only if it's necessary. You know, if someone sues us or, or is, is, you know, seeking litigation against us, you know, what, what's driving us to, to lawyer up to defend ourselves? What's driving us uh, to, to seek a resolution? Is it what, to get what we want and need and deserve out of this situation? You know, is that what Jesus taught us? Is that what Jesus showed and demonstrated to us in how he dealt with how the whole world has offended God and his response to that? You know, certainly anything legal, uh, you know, trusts and, and business law and all that kind of thing. Like we definitely need to interact with the government and, and go to court in those kind of things to, to live in this legal system that we exist in. And certainly anything criminal must go through the legal system we sit under, the government we sit under. This is not referring to criminal offenses. So this is not a warrant to cover up criminal activity in the church which it has been used in the past, but that is not what it's talking about. And this is, you know, if someone were to, to do a crime, and it's certainly any kind of sin that Paul's very clear has no place in the church, it's not to cover that up, but, but deal with it and, and, you know, in the criminal courts as it should be under the government that God has given to, to, to deal with that. But, but very quickly... So, you know, the Corinthians have given us a great way of how not to handle conflict. How should we handle conflict? What should we do? And there's certainly lots to say and probably too much then in this small little tangent. But um, uh, one thing that Paul does raise is that he's given elders to help us through this, to help people work through their conflict. And, you know, we're going into a season of elder nomination and there's elders in the room today. Are we equipped uh, to, to guide people through conflict and guide it in a biblical way and not, not in a way that's driven by grace and not by greed. Another thing, something I've been uh, influenced a lot in the past is through the ministry of PeaceWise and the book, The Peacemaker. And I've got lots of um, resources on that. And they kind of have like four guiding principles for handling conflict. And the first one is glorifying God. Every conflict is an opportunity to bring glory to God. And it's not about what I get out of this. It's not about coming out on top. It's about bringing glory and honor to God to reflect his love and grace that he showed me to this other person. The second thing is get the log out of your own eye. Now, I'm sure all of us have heard that before. And it's that, that attitude of honest self-reflection of how, how have I contributed to this conflict? Because no conflict is entirely one-sided. You know, and it might be 80% them, 20% us. We need to take 100% responsibility for our contribution to that conflict. And being honest and self-reflected, even hearing what they have to say, even hearing what they have to accuse against us and not jumping to defend ourselves, 
but trying that on, speaking to others, you know, are they true? Did I behave poorly in that situation uh, before returning to them? The next one is uh, gently restore. So this is not to make accusations. You did this. You said this. You took this. Because in reality, all those things could be denied. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I didn't take that. But what you can do is being honest about how their behavior affected you, how you, how you felt. I've, I felt hurt when you said this. I felt um, whatever when you did this. That, that they can't deny. And it, and it encourages us and everyone to take responsibility of the result of our actions, not just the intention, but being, being careful to gently restore. Uh, and then finally, go and be reconciled. You notice these all start with G. Go and be reconciled. The goal, again, is not to get what we want out of the conflict. The goal is a restored relationship. And uh, that's the true win. The true win in a conflict is a restored relationship, not we getting what we want not them losing. It's a restored relationship. It's the true win. Uh, I've got um, piecewise flyers at the back. If you want more on any of that, do grab one of them. I've got heaps of those kind of resources. But the Corinthian church were obviously not behaving in that way. They were behaving horribly, uh, you know, being driven by greed to take people out to court to, to get whatever they can out of, out of them and win up and and end up on top at the expense of others. And there was terrible behavior that did not reflect God's kingdom way at all. And it leads to a deeper issue of what's going on. Deeper issue in the Corinthian church, a deeper issue in today's church, is that we are deceived into thinking that's okay. That it's okay to take our brothers and sisters to court and to get whatever we can out of them. It's okay to behave in that way. If you read the very next verse, verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those who behave in this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who don't live in the way of God's kingdom will not be welcome in God's kingdom. You know, they were deceived. They bought this lie that it's okay to live this way because, you know, God loves us. God loves me and he's forgiven me. You know, we've got a thriving church and a thriving ministry and we're growing. So it's okay that we behave horribly because look how great the church is. Look what, how things are happening. Look at the fruit. But Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't buy into that lie that, you, that it's okay to, to, to live against the way that God would have us live, to disobey him, to behave in a way that hurts other people, but way, behave in ways that offend God. Paul expands this issue, not just in conflict and that dr being driven by greed, but a whole range of issues that he addresses throughout the book. And, uh, and it's quite an extensive list. It's quite a challenging list quite a controversial list and also quite a universal list. So let's, let's read it from the second half of verse nine. Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor adulterers, sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, hard saying them in succession, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This kind of behavior is not kingdom conduct. 
sexual immorality, sexual, the sexually immoral. Paul, Paul's already covered this a bit in chapter 5, and he, he kind of goes into much more detail in the second half of, verse, of chapter 6. But God has a good plan and purpose for sex in a married com- context. And uh, you know, in the evening service, we're going to talk about that from chapter 7 next week. But sex outside of that context is not what God would have for us. And it's indulging our own desires and our own lusts in order to feed ourselves. Uh, And that's not kingdom conduct. So things like looking at porn or sleeping around with with a girlfriend or boyfriend or, uh, you know, who we follow and look at and indulge uh, on Facebook and Instagram and, and whatever else. It's not kingdom conduct. It's not what God would have for us. The next thing is idolatry. The de- seeking uh, desires for other things, taking over our desire to serve and love God. And that could be wealth, status, popularity. We've, we've talked about this before in many different contexts, the way that the, the desires for other things in our lives overtake our desire to, to serve and love the God who saved us who made us. And I've been thinking a lot recently about what, what do we do in our idle time, an I-D-L-E time, where we you know, have nothing else to do. And in this very time-poor world that we find ourselves, when we do have a few minutes or hours or whatever, what do we do with that time? Do we use that for God? Like, There's a great opportunity to spend some time in prayer, to, to meditate on His Word, or even to sit in silence and hear what God might have to say. Or do we find ourselves sacrificing to our other idols on social media or uh, thinking about that gossip or whatever else? What are we doing with our idle time? Is our idle time becoming our idle time? Is our I-D-L-E time becoming our I-D-O-L time? Next, it's not kingdom conduct. Next, adultery. And unfortunately, uh, the rates of adultery in the church is very much the same as adultery outside the church. And that can look like a whole range of different things. Uh, It could be, you know, those lingering eyes or the flirtatious interactions with someone who's not uh, your your spouse or the inappropriate emotional vulnerability to someone who's not your spouse. That's not kingdom conduct. Then uh, the very controversial in our culture and society at the moment, men who have sex with men. Like Paul's using a, a, nu- a number of Greek words to explain those who are uh, homos- homosexual or those who, who behave in, those who have sex in a homosexual way, the same, same gender. And this is countercultural. This rubs against uh, our culture's drive for sex, self-expression and tolerance. But I want to be clear and careful how I share about this. The Bible, again, the Bible is clear about God's design for marriage. That's between a man and a woman as, as God created them. And God's design for sex is to be, is a gift for that context as the man and woman become one flesh. And sex in any context outside of that marriage unit is not God's way, whether that's heterosexual or homosexual. That's not God's kingdom way. And so to, to in to indulge that, to behave in the way, to, to act outside of that conduct is not to live according to what God would have for us. Now, that doesn't, 
That doesn't mean that those who are same-sex attracted are never welcome in the church. This is talking about same-sex behavior, people who act in this way. Same as those who are heterosexual and, and other sex attracted but not yet married. It's acting on that. Not obeying what God commands in his word is, is behavior that's not welcome. People are welcome. People are invited. God loves all people of gender, sexuality, race, whatever. But he does have a sexual ethic that he's created and given to us. One that is not the same as our cultures. And, that, and, and so to, to break that, to have sex outside of that marriage context is not God's kingdom way. There's lots more to say on that. And if you want to speak about that later, I'll be happy to. But let's keep moving. Well, actually, the other thing to say is that this is not one specific thing that's much bigger than the rest. It's, it's very big for certainly a large portion of the population who actually have to deal with this individually and decide for themselves, am I going to act or am I going to um, remain faithful and obedient to God? But for all of us, the rest of the list, this list probably hits much more close to home. The next one, thieving, thieves. You know, this, this was relevant for me uh, at a time... Um, uh, a few years ago where I, you, you know, the, the main means of getting music was either paying for it or pirating it. And I had a large uh, pirated music collection of music that I had obtained and downloaded from wherever and didn't pay those who created it. And I was, you know, I was convicted of that at one point and deleted about 20 gigs of pirated music. But, you know, how much we just buy into this idea of getting what we want without actually paying what's due. Taking without giving what, what people, people are owed, whether it's pirated music or uh, whatever else it might be. It's not kingdom conduct. The greedy, those uh, uh, you know, keeping for myself what I could give away, seeking to serve and indulge my own needs and desires before others and serving others, that's not kingdom conduct. Uh, drunks, drunkards, drinking to excess and losing control. And this is, this is a hallmark of Australian culture for a large portion of our, our culture, um, being indulgent in how much we consume. And even being proud of that is a mark of honor, you know, getting smashed on the weekend. Uh, and, and, you know, and all the other problems that that leads to as we lose control. That's not kingdom conduct. Uh, slanderers. Another marker of Australian conduct of, you know, tall poppy syndrome and tearing people down. Uh, gossiping, calling names, sharing people's secrets, um, discouraging people, bullying, whether that's overtly or subtly, is not kingdom conduct. Then swindlers, taking advantage of people, using the power within our means to take advantage and get what we want at the expense of others. That is not kingdom conduct. Now, I don't, want, I don't want anyone to hear me wrong or hear Paul wrong that uh, these people are not welcome in the church at all. Because if that were the case, then this room would be empty. Uh, it's very harsh, the kind of behavior that Paul says is not welcome in God's kingdom. It's harsh, it's controversial, it's also universal. Who isn't on this list? Who, isn't, who hasn't behaved in one of these ways? Who hasn't failed in one of these ways? We are all guilty. We've all behaved in ways that is not kingdom conduct. 
And none of us are welcome into God's kingdom based on how we live. None of us. Not one. Something needs to change. Something needs to happen. And that's the beauty and the power of the next verse. That says, and that's what some of you were. That's what some of you were. That's not who you are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Paul says, remember who you are. You're not defined by all those, that bad behavior, the, the way you used to live. You're defined by something new now. And we're going to go through those three words very carefully. The first one, you are washed. I've got um, a cup here, freshly uh, dirtied by the dirt outside. Who would drink out of this cup? Who would accept anything out of this cup? full of our guilt and shame, the, the websites we've looked at, the things we've said behind people's back, the thoughts we've had against people, the gossip we've indulged, our greediness, our guilt, our shame. Who would, who would take this? Who would receive this? Who would happily drink from this cup? Certainly not God. But that is who we are. That's not, so that's who we were. That is not who we are. Because what Christ has done is he came into the world and he washed us. He died on a cross so that we could be cleansed from our sin. We could be forgiven and cleansed. And so no more, no more are we defined by the, the evil, horrible, broken things that we, we used to do, that we still do. We are defined by what Christ has done. He has forgiven us. He has washed us. He has made us clean. And so when, when we come before God, God doesn't see our muck and grime and brokenness. He sees what Christ has done for us. And he accepts us. He loves us, welcomes us into his kingdom. The second thing Paul says is that we are sanctified. We are sanctified. Big biblical word uh, that means to make holy. And holy is another big biblical word, which means to be set apart for a specific purpose. And what this means is that we are given a new life. No longer are we defined by this guilt and shame. We're given a new purpose, a new meaning to our life. And that is we're set apart to live God's way, to live as part of God's kingdom. God has given us a purpose, a new life, living for the king. And that's definitive and done. Like we, we, we exist, we've been set apart for God as God's child. It's definitive and done. It's also progressive. It's also a progressive transformation as the Holy Spirit uh, fills us and changes us and convicts us and challenges us and transforms us to, to, to move our life and the way we live in line with God's purpose for us. And he produces the fruit of the Spirit in us. He, he helps us to say no to the things that uh, the, the old way of life. Helps us to grow into the purpose that God has for us. It's definitive and done, but also progressive. Finally, justified. We've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, we've, we're all guilty of those there's the bad behavior on that list. We are all deserving of God's judgment and wrath, something we don't like talking about it, but it's true. I deserve God's judgment. I'm guilty. I deserve his judgment. But Jesus has taken that for me. 
Jesus taken God's punishment that was meant for me. He's taken, taken it. And it's just as if I'd never sinned, justified, just as if I'd never had done anything wrong before God because Jesus has paid the penalty for me. And so no longer am I separated from God. I've been restored to him. I'm made right before God. You have been made right before God if you trust in the work Jesus has done. That is who we are. We've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. And so no more do we have to behave in that old way of life. No more do we need to uh, have that mentality of one-upmanship, of always you know, being the winner of a conflict, because that is just not who we are. We are God's children. We've been washed clean of all that. We've been sanctified, given a new purpose. We've been made right with God. So we don't need to behave in those ways. But there's still the problem of sin in the church. We don't need to behave in those ways, but we still do. We're still tempted. We still battle with these different sins and these behaviors. We still find ourselves going down those paths which we know are wrong and we know is not God's way. We know that it's not kingdom conduct, yet we still indulge that and do that. And so to finish up, I want to share, how do we get rid of that behavior in our lives? How do we get rid of sin in our lives? The first thing that I've already been speaking about is remember who you are. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. But in the name of Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God, remember who you are. Secondly, it's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit who is in us to guide us and to set us apart for God's purpose and the flesh that keeps wanting to, to indulge those things and to serve ourselves and like, no, 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 just one more time. And, you know, that, that flesh that's driving us back to the, the old way of doing things and that sinful, broken world that we just want to indulge is this daily battle, even hourly, minute by minute battle between the spirit and the flesh. And it's a battle we can win. Because the war has been won by God. We've been washed. We're not defined. Even if we make mistakes today, that doesn't tarnish or take us out of God's kingdom. That's been forgiven. We've, we've, God has won the war so we can win the battle. The battle between the spirit and the flesh. We can win because we're together in community. It's not just one of us trying to struggle this all by ourselves as an individual without any support. We're in community. We have uh, people around us who can help us in our struggles and battles. And let me tell you, every person here has a struggle and battle that we're working through, everyone. And so to wear that alone is, is an is, is a incredibly difficult thing to do. And we have an opportunity to, with people around us, friends, spouses, elders, pastors, small groups, whatever, to help us to share our struggles and vulnerabilities and brokenness and say, hey, I'm really struggling in this area. Can you pray for me? Can you keep me accountable? Can I tell you next week how I'm going? There's opportunity there that we cannot go through this alone, but we can go, we can fight these battles together with the Holy Spirit, with God's people, God's church. And it's not that you share everything with everyone, but it shouldn't be we share something with no one. And finally, 
We share, we, we fight these battles one day at a time. One day at a time. Uh, I, I get this from a guy in the States called John Elmer who wrote this book, Freedom Starts Today. Um, he's a recovering alcoholic. And you, you'd go and ask him, hey, John, how, how long have you been sober? And he would say, about 12 hours and 26 minutes. Because he just takes it one day at a time. And the, the, the thing behind this is, you know, it's, it's committing for the next 24 hours to not indulge that desire, to not act in that way, but to live according to God's kingdom way for the next 24 hours. And once you make that, then it's committing for the following 24 hours, then the next 24 hours. And even, even if we were to fail or, or make a mistake or, or to, to break that cycle, it's, we're not then, oh, I've, I've messed up and therefore I've just, I'm just down this pit of guilt and keep indulging that. No, we can pick ourselves up and commit for the next 24 hours. So it breaks that, that cycle mentality. It also, it's teaching us and teaching our brains to commit to the Lord every day. It's, it's a daily decision that today I'm going to live God's way and not, not the old way. I'm going to live in light of who God has made me to be, not in spite of God who who's God has made me to be. And it's teaching us day by day, every day, to commit to God's, to God's way, to remind ourselves day by day who we are, who God has made us, that we're washed, sanctified, and justified. Day by day, training us to live according to God's way. So we remember who we are. It's a battle between flesh and spirit, a battle we can win because God has won the war. We do it together in community, not alone. And we do it day by day, committing ourselves to the Lord and his way. The Corinthian church were caught up in conflict, taking each other to court, living uh, lives that did not reflect who they were, who God had made them to be. And the church today, unfortunately, there's ways that we behave that don't reflect the God who saved us, that don't reflect you know, the temple of God. You know, as, as God's people, we are his temple, his, the, the place where he dwells, the, the place that the world would, would meet and engage with God would be through the church. And yet we behave so poorly sometimes. But we don't need to. We don't need to be deceived and think that we can indulge that or we, we have to live that way. God has washed us. He has sanctified us. He has justified us that we might live to reflect him, live lives that, that reflect the God who saved us, who loves us, who wants to transform us. So why don't we pray as the band comes up that he would do that. God, thank you so much. For your word, God, we do acknowledge that this is challenging. This is convicting. There are ways that we have all behaved that is just not kingdom conduct, that it goes against your word, against your law. And we just want to confess that. We just want to acknowledge that, that we are broken. We are guilty. But praise you, Lord Jesus, that you came into earth. You pursued us out of love to die for us to rise again so that we could be washed, we could be sanctified. You've given us a new purpose, that we could be justified. You've made us right with God. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, for your work in our lives. And I just pray for anyone struggling with, with a particular sin. It could be a porn addiction. It could be um, anger issues. It could be um, 
uh, gossip, it could be um, a, a particular conflict that they just can't break out of. God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to fill these people. Pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us, to not be deceived into thinking that it's okay, that we can get away with it. But God, shine your light in that dark places of our hearts that we might bring it before you in confession. God, help us to share that with other people that we not go through it alone and help us to commit to, to living for you day by day in light of who we are, that we are washed clean, that we are sanctified, given a purpose, we are justified, made right. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.